Great. Do have Joshua chapter 3 and 4 in front of you. Make sure you can see that. Um, And let's pray together as we come to God's word. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are the God who speaks to us. Father, we thank you that you reveal to yourself to us in your word. Father, thank you that we have a chance now together to listen to your voice. And so we pray that you would make us people ready to listen, ready to hear you speak and to be changed by you as you do that. For Jesus' name's sake we pray. Amen. Well, as we think about um, Bible reading and doing that through the week, I want to begin by asking you a question. Um, And that is, how would you describe the Bible? How do you describe the Bible? If someone uh, came up to you and asked, what is this book that you keep talking about? What would you say to them? Just think for a minute. How would you describe the Bible? Uh, People describe it in all sorts of different ways, don't they? Uh, Some might say it's like a road map for life, or or, or perhaps the maker's instructions, or a, a love letter from God to us. There are all sorts of different ways that we describe the Bible, we think about the Bible. And the thing with those descriptions is that they often reveal who we think the Bible is all about. So last week I began by describing the Bible a bit like a story, a story in which we can identify with different characters, people like Rahab. But as I thought about that over the week, the problem with that description is that it makes it sound as though the Bible is primarily all about me. And so as I read it, I come to it and immediately ask questions like, who am I in the story? What should I do? Who should I be like? And whilst those are good questions to ask, they're not the first questions we need to ask as we come to the Bible. And that is because the Bible isn't primarily a story about me or you. No, first and foremost, the Bible is a story about God. He is the one at the center. He is the one that every story points us to. He is the hero in every situation. And so the first question that we need to ask is, what does this tell me about God? What do I learn about him? Before we then go on to think about ourselves and the implications for us. So just think back to what we've seen so far, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through Joshua this term. And in Joshua chapter 1, we saw that God is the one who is faithful to his promises. And so it's because of his faithfulness that Joshua can be strong and courageous as he leads the people into the land. Then last week in chapter 2, we saw that God is the one who welcomes the outsider. And so it's because of his grace that Rahab the prostitute can be welcomed as one of his people. And now as we come to chapters 3 and 4, we see that that it is God who brings his people into the promised land. In fact, that is the big message of these chapters. Again and again, we read that it is God who goes ahead of his people. God who exalts his leader, Joshua. God who stops the river Jordan. God who gets his people across on dry land. The big message of Joshua chapter 3 and 4 is that the Lord gets his people into the promised land. And we can see that first of all because he is the one who goes ahead of them. He goes ahead of them. Last week we ended chapter 2 with the spies coming back from Jericho and their report that the people were terrified and that the land is ready to be taken. 
But then chapter 3 begins with a reminder that before they can go in and attack any cities, before they can do any conquering, they first need to get across the Jordan River. They are camped on one side, and the first target, the city of Jericho, is over on the other side. So what are they going to do? How are they going to get near on three million people across this river and into the land? Well, in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, Joshua gives orders to the people. Just look there with me. He says, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. When faced with the Jordan River in front of them, the first thing that God tells his people to do is stand back and watch. They are to watch as the Ark of the Covenant goes out ahead of them. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol, the visible symbol of God's presence with his people. And I don't know if you noticed as, uh, as the passage was read through how many times the Ark is mentioned It comes up again and again, doesn't it? It's there in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8. It goes on. 17 times we're told about the ark, the visible presence of God with his people. And the reason we're told about it so many times is there in verse 10. Verse 10, this is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. God ensures that his people hold back and watch as the ark moves out ahead of them. Because, verse 10, he wants them to be in no doubt that the Lord of all the earth is with them. You see, it wouldn't be long before the Israelites would come up against some pretty fierce opposition. They would face mighty fortresses and terrifying armies. And so there will be times, there would have been times, when they were tempted to think, we're out of our depth. There's no way that we can do this. These people are too big, their armies are too strong. How do we do it? In the face of their enemies, the Israelites would have been tempted to lose heart. But you see, God brings them across the Jordan in this way, with his ark right at the center, so that they know he is with them. So they can have confidence that he goes ahead of them. It is God who will get his people into the promised land. First, because he goes ahead of them. And second, because he does the impossible for them. Here are the Israelites. They're they're standing on the edge of the Jordan. Uh, They're watching as the ark goes into the water. Uh, But then in verse 15, we read a small detail that makes a big difference to what is about to happen. Just at the start there of verse 15. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Not only have the Israelites got to get across the Jordan, they've got to get across during flood season. The experts say that that during flood season, the river was around a mile wide and up to 12 feet deep. But more than that, in verse 16, we're told that the Israelites were crossing somewhere between the town of Adam and the Sea of Arabah. And again, the experts say that at this part of the river, 
the elevation, the drop in elevation is particularly severe. It's around 40 feet every mile compared to the normal nine feet elsewhere along the river. All that means is that, that God has brought his people to cross the river at the worst possible place, at the worst possible time. And again, he does it to teach them something. He does it to teach them that, that without him, well, they can do nothing. It's actually a lesson that he's going to need to keep on teaching them as they go on into the land. As we go through the book of Joshua this term, we're going to see that time and time again, God does things that stops the Israelites in their tracks. It stops them and reminds them that, that they are not the ones conquering the promised land. He is. Because whilst the Israelites might have initially felt afraid as they stood there on the brink of the river, God knew that there would be a time when that fear would be replaced with pride. Once cities were captured and battles won and enemies defeated, it would be tempting for the Israelites to think that, that they had done it all themselves. As we're going to see, it would, become, it would become tempting for them to rely on themselves, on their own strength, to make their own plans and head into battles by themselves without first coming to God and relying on him. Which is why here in chapter 3, God brings them to the deepest, fastest part of the Jordan to show them that without him they can do nothing. To show them that no amount of human strength, no wisdom or effort could get them across. To show them that they need him. Without God, the Israelites can do nothing. But on the flip side, with him, they can do anything. You see, whilst the raging river Jordan was an impossible obstacle for the people, it wasn't impossible for God. Look at verse 15 again. Now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. The very moment the priests' feet touch the water and the ark enters the river, the water stops. It stops flowing and then we read on in verse 16, it piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. While all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. God stops the river so that all three million or so Israelites could cross over without getting their feet wet. Not a drop of water moves until we read later on in chapter 4, verse 18, that the priests come up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and no sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place, and they ran in flood as before. Do you see? God places his ark, the symbol of his presence, right at the heart of the action, to show the people that he is the one who stops the river. He is the one who makes it pile up in a heap. He is the one who does the impossible. The crossing of the Jordan was to leave the Israelites in no doubt that it was God and God alone 
who got them into the promised land. That's the point of the stones in chapter 4, isn't it? At the beginning of chapter 4, God instructs the people to choose 12 stones right out from the middle of the Jordan, from the middle of the river. And then having crossed over to the other side, they're to set those stones up as a pillar at the first place that they make camp. And the reason is there in verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a a memorial to the people of Israel forever. God tells Joshua to, to get these stones and to set them up as a permanent visual reminder of the fact that he is the one who brought them into the land. And so the Israelites, they were to remember and rehearse to their children and their children's children and their children's children's children the story of God's faithfulness, the story of his power in bringing the people into the land. That's what they had to remember. That's what the crossing of the Jordan was all about. That's what they needed to learn. That is why God did it this way. But what would that lesson lead to? What was the intended effect for God's people? If the big message of Joshua 3 to 4 is that God brings his people into the promised land, well then what is the purpose of that message? What are the people of Israel meant to do as a result? What are we meant to do as a result? Well, the answer is there for us at the end of chapter 4. You see, at the end of chapter 4, Joshua repeats the instructions for the stone pillar. And he spells out the aim, the purpose of all that is happening. Just look there, chapter 4, verse 23. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did it so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. God's purpose in bringing his people across the Jordan in this way was firstly so that all the peoples of the earth, all the surrounding nations might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. So just imagine for a moment with me if you can Uh, an Israelite family is being interviewed on the Canaanite news Uh, there's a sort of Canaanite version of Piers Morgan uh, there and he's managed to get an exclusive interview with these people with his family just days after the big crossing come on then says Piers how did it happen how did it really happen what did Joshua do how did he pull it off where did you get the materials you needed Where did your engineers get their training? How did you organize three million people to to get across? What were the losses? Surely there were some losses, some casualties. Tell us, give us the dirt. How did you really do it, says Piers. And you can imagine, can't you, the, the Israelite family sitting there, looking a bit puzzled, a little bit confused, pausing for a minute and then saying, we didn't do it. We didn't do anything. All we did was walk across. 
It was the Lord, the God of all the earth, the, the God who we worship. He was the one who did it. He stopped the Jordan. He made the dry path for us to walk across. The hand of our God is powerful. Don't you see, Pierce? He does what no other person, no other God, no other philosophy, no other religion can do. Our God promises to bring us safely into the land. And then he does it. By his mighty power, our God does the impossible. He guarantees our future with him. You see, Piers, you need to know that the hand of our God is powerful. And if you're not a Christian here this evening, well, then you need to know the same thing too. You need to know that this crossing of the Jordan, it really did happen. The words that we've read this evening are the words of history. It was an amazing event in a real place at a real time. But it was also an event that points beyond itself to something even greater. You see, in the end, the crossing of the Jordan is just a picture. It's a picture of how God will bring his people into the ultimate promised land. Not a land somewhere in the Middle East, No, God has promised something far, far greater. God has promised a new land, a new heavens and a new earth, a a perfect new creation, a land that people can live in and enjoy with him forever. But there's a problem. There's a problem because just as as with the Israelites, there is a barrier between us and God's perfect land. It's not a sea or a river, No, our barrier is far greater. It's the barrier of our sin. Because by nature, we are God's enemies. Last week we saw that, didn't we? We are outsiders, enemies of God. We are guilty of rebelling against him. And so far from deserving a place in his perfect new creation, we deserve nothing but banishment. Nothing but his anger and his judgment for the way that we've treated him. And so our rebellion, our sin, it it stands as a barrier between us and God. A barrier that we can do nothing about. No matter how hard we try, no matter how moral or religious or well-meaning we might be, we can do nothing to remove this barrier. It is impossible for us. But it's not impossible for God. In Mark's gospel, uh, the disciples have just heard Jesus explaining about how not even the most religious, not even the most respectable or richest of men can get their way to heaven. And so, shocked, they ask Jesus, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? To which Jesus replies in Mark chapter 10, verse 27, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Left to ourselves, the barrier of our sin is impossible for us to remove. But wonderfully, God does not leave us to ourselves. Through the death of his son, God has removed that barrier. And so it's at the cross that we see that Jesus goes ahead of his people into death. It's at the cross that we see Jesus does the impossible for his people by defeating their sin in dying in their place. 
It's at the cross that we see that our future is guaranteed as Jesus doesn't stay dead, but is raised to new life. And so it's at the cross that all that the peoples of the earth can see that the hand of the Lord is powerful, powerful to save. And so the question for us is, what are you hoping in? What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in to bring you security, to bring you rest in the future? God stops the River Jordan to show the world that only he has the power to save. And so the question is, are we trusting in him? Are we to see God's power? And then secondly, we are to fear his name. Just look at verse 24 again. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Fear in the Bible it simply means recognizing God's glory, his majesty, his awesome power. It means treating God as God, treating him as he deserves, obeying him, trusting him with all that we are. Acknowledging that he, the Lord, is the God of all the earth. And so the crossing at the Jordan, well, it was meant to help his people understand that. Help his people get a right view, a right understanding of their God. God brought them across the Jordan in this way. So that in the future, when they were tempted to lose heart, they would fear the Lord more than the enemy. They would trust him no matter how hard the opposition they faced. And he brought them across the Jordan in this way so that when things seemed to be going well, when they were winning battles and, and, and having success, and they were tempted to pride and self-sufficiency, well, they would remember that they could do nothing without him, that they were only there because of him. And so I wonder, what causes you concern about the future? What are the things that might cause you to lose heart, to lose sight of who God is? What are the things that might lead you to fear or to pride as a Christian? What is it that's leading you to trust in something other than God for your security and your future? Joshua chapter 3 and 4 is written so that God's people then and God's people now might always fear, always trust, and always follow the Lord their God. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we know that like the Israelites, we are forgetful people. Like the Israelites, we can experience uh, amazing things. We can witness you do amazing things and then just the next day forget all about it. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to remember the things that you have done. Help us to remember the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just something that happened a long time ago, way back in history, but something that shapes and changes and affects all that we do every single day of our lives. Father, would your words this evening please help us to see that you are the hero of the story and that we live our lives for you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.